All right, let's, um, as we get into the text today, let's give this some thought. I want to talk about facts and feelings, facts and feelings. And some of us in this room are more fact people, and some of us in this room are more feeling people. And uh, facts uh, speak to objective evidence. They speak to actual data or actual proofs that we have. And having all of that, the proofs, the data, the information, the evidence, all of that points to certainty. Because I have these facts, I can be certain about a certain matter. But see if this isn't true as well, that feelings, I can feel the fact people bristling already, but feelings can lead us subjectively, I get it, it's more personal, but subjectively, feelings can also lead us to something true and right. We can just sense this is right. And so it too, feelings can also lead to certainty. Now before all the fact people start running out of the room saying that I'm saying something that's completely off base and wrong, this is my point. Both facts and feelings can lead to certainty. And we will miss out on a lot in life if we simply wait for all the facts to come in. Because sometimes all the facts don't come in. Sometimes we need to listen to our hearts as they, and this is a phrase out of today's passage, sometimes we need to listen to our hearts as they burn within us. Now a huge qualification over this, okay? That feeling of rightness, I feel like this is right, that feeling of rightness is never enough on its own. This is where... If you, if, you, if you study postmodern philosophy or you think about relativism and kind of what drives relativism, that, that whatever you feel is right is right, that's where they get, get it wrong. The feeling of rightness is never enough on its own. Eventually, feelings must be supported by the facts. Is everybody good so far? Ready to keep going on this? Eventually, feelings must be supported by the facts, but both facts and feelings can lead to certainty. Now, all of that relates to where we're at today in Luke's gospel. And in fact, the entirety of Luke's gospel was written to a man named Theophilus. And if you go all the way back to the beginning in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, he said this to Theophilus, I'm writing this gospel, I'm writing this account of Jesus' life so that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. I'm going to write out all the proofs here and you're going to feel some things along the way, but I've written it so that you can have certainty. And Luke takes us back, that was all the way back in chapter 1 verse 4, but Luke brings us back now in chapter 24 to this overarching theme of certainty. He wants us to revisit this idea again because he's bringing the gospel to a close and he wants to remind us again what it's about. That we can be certain about these things. And in our passage today, verses 13 through 35 of chapter 24, uh, we're going to meet two disciples who did not yet have the facts, but they certainly had a feeling about something. And they said in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, speaking of Jesus, while he talked to us on the road and while he opened to us the scriptures? Did our hearts not burn within us? 
Didn't we feel like something was right here, that, that, there, that there was something more to this man? And they're asking themselves this question because at that point they didn't know who he was. They didn't know he was the risen Christ. And so this encounter, it raises a question for us today. Coming off of Good Friday and, and all that we reflected on more than a week ago, coming off of last Sunday, Easter Sunday, the resurrection, I want to ask you the question again. Now, you've come back this week, so that's a good sign. But are you certain about Jesus? Are you certain about him? And does your life really reflect that certainty? Are you sure that he is who he said he is? Are you sure about the things that he did? Are you sure about the things that he taught? And we're going to see how that certainty about Jesus plays out in our lives. So I'm going to read the text and uh, then I'm going to pray for us and we'll go after this, okay? This is Luke 24, uh, beginning at verse 13 and ending at verse 35. That very day... Two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. When they did not find his body, they came back, said that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe, all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did our hearts, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. 
Let's pray together. Father, I would hope that each one of us in this room would heartily pray that we want this certainty about Jesus. We want to know him. We want to experience him. Father, we want such clarity in our own minds and in our hearts concerning Jesus. And we want that to, to compel and, and drive us in our lives. And so God, as we have your word open now, and you speak to us through your word. And as your Holy Spirit works in this room, Father, I pray that we would become so resolved in our faith and in what we believe about Christ today. This work can only happen if your Holy Spirit works. And so we plead for that now, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen? All right. Here's the declaration that we want to be able to make, every one of us, as we uh, exit the room, exit this building here today. It's, I have certainty about Jesus, and we're going to lay out some reasons why you can have that or how you can come to that certainty. I have certainty about Jesus because, first of all, I know his presence. It's the first one. I know his presence. Now, I'll concede, having read the verses, and you heard them read, the verses do not support the idea that these two disciples knew that Jesus was with them. Verse 13, they're going to a village. Verse 14, they're talking as they go, as people would do. Verse 15, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Verse 16 says, but their eyes were kept. Now a little bit of theological grammar here. This is a passive voice, and, but it's a divine passive. In other words, Read it this way, their eyes were kept by God. Their eyes were kept, by, God's doing this, keeping them from seeing that it's Jesus. Their eyes were kept by God from recognizing him. Now let me ask you a very simple question here as we look at the text. Very simple question, very straightforward answer. I'm not trying to trick you. That's so important for me to say right now. Okay, not trying to trick you. Here's the question, was Jesus with them? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. You got it. Whether they knew it or not, and in this case, they did not know it. But whether they knew it or not, Jesus was actually there with them. Now, I feel like we could wrap the sermon up right here and we'd have a lesson right, right, right out of the gate. Something we could write down and take home. And, and, and the lesson is that even when we don't know Jesus is with us, is Jesus with us? He sure is. He sure is. And there's so many times when, when we can just make it so difficult to actually see the presence of God around us, but for sure, for sure he's there. Now, we have an advantage over these two disciples in that we have the scriptures, and so we have greater knowledge of this whole account and what we know about God. And so we know for sure that we have the presence of God, that Christ is actually with us as believers. Now, I like what Richard Rohr said about this. He said, we cannot attain the presence of God. Okay, we can't attain it. We're already totally in the presence of God. What's absent is awareness. Do we actually realize that God is with us? Are we aware of the presence of Christ with us? These disciples were unaware of Jesus being with them because God in this moment for his own reasons, the divine passive, God is the one who's actually keeping them from seeing him. But we have a full knowledge 
And so if we are unaware of the presence of God, it's not a divine passive that's keeping us from seeing him. It's actually very much active. I'm the one who's keeping myself from seeing the presence of God. Because I know he's with me. So why do you think, why do you think it is that we're unaware of the presence of God? You want to build a list? Yeah? All right, we're going to build one anyway. We fail to experience the presence of God up on the screen. Number one, because of distraction. There's just too much going on in our lives. Our calendars, there's not nearly enough white space on our calendars. There's way too much going on in our lives. We're filling our lives with activity. We have too busy of a pace of life. We have messed up priorities so that things that are really important that should be on the calendar gets pushed off the calendar for things that are much less important because we haven't prioritized our lives correctly. Beyond that, we're always, every single time there's a, a moment, we're looking at our cell phones. We, we actually create distractions for ourselves. We can't sit for a minute and just think we got to pull out our phones and check our social media or see if we have any texts or read through our email or read something else. We're just constantly on our phones and it's a distraction. We can't see the presence of God in our lives because of the presence of an iPhone in our lives. We're so distracted. Beyond that, we, 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 just, we get distracted by the circumstances of our lives, the things that are going on in our lives that might be out of our control. And we let those circumstances so consume us and occupy all of our thinking and all of our time. You think about these, these two disciples, in fact. Let's come back to them for a second. And verse 13 says, that same day, which day? Well, last week we looked at the passage on Easter Sunday, the passage right before this one, and we looked at the resurrection. And so that same day is what day? It's Sunday. It's Sunday. I mean, they were there. And you find out a little bit later in the passage, we read it, we'll look at it in, in depth in a few more minutes, but they gave some details. In other words, they were there with all the other disciples on Sunday morning in Jerusalem they, by their own mouth, say that the women went to the tomb, met some angels, heard that he was risen, came back and gave the story. And even though they heard all of that, they were so consumed with their own circumstances and the crushing nature of the things that have just happened that they walked out of that building and left Jerusalem even though they had some evidence coming at them that Jesus was resurrected. They left Jerusalem. They were so distracted by their circumstances. And we can allow the circumstances of our life just to push God to the side. All I can see is what's happening to me. And we miss the presence of God. Here's a second one. It's related to it, but it's noise. Just noise. The, the society we live in now is so noisy. And we as a culture, I believe this is true, we can't tolerate silence. How many people know about one of the most wonderful places 
in Simcoe County is a place called the Scandinavian Spa. How many people know this place? How many people know this place? The people that don't know this place, I don't care for you to know about it because I don't want it to get crowded. <laughs> so just forget about this illustration once I'm done with it. The Scandinavian Spa is in Collingwood and you, you go there and um, there's... Uh, there's hot baths and there's cold baths and there's saunas and just wonderful. There's three hot baths and they run at 101 and 102, 104 degrees. And then there's cold baths that once you're in the hot baths, you go in the cold baths and they're like 59 and 58 and 60 degrees. And you're supposed to have this nice cold plunge and you come back out again. There's a couple of saunas. My favorite, the eucalyptus steam room. How many people love that room? I love that room just this beautiful eucalyptus steam and it just cleanses your body and, and, and cleans out your, it's just amazing. I love the place. Now, you, you go there for the day. Cheryl and I were there on Thursday. We had a wonderful Sabbath rest there on Thursday and, and we were there for seven hours just soaking it all in. They have quiet rooms and Muskoka chairs and fires burning and you can read and you can fall asleep on a hammock. It's wonderful. The one primary rule is quiet. You can't talk when you're in there. There's signs everywhere. Quiet, please. Shh. We value silence. These signs are all over the grounds. But the, the thing is, you even sign a waiver upstairs before you even go down to the baths. You, 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 you sign a waiver that says, I'm going to be quiet. People lie. <laughs> People lie. Some people go down to the baths and, and, and they start... It's like they're at Tim Hortons. They take their friends with them and they're having a conversation in the baths. And I, I want to drown people. I'm, I, even in the midst of Sabbathing and doing something really godly, I feel very carnal. And, and like I want to do sinful things to people. I have been known to shuff, shush people. Shush. We just can't be quiet. We just have such a hard time whenever there's any silence around us. I mean, I wonder how many of you in your homes, you would say this is true of you, that even if nobody is watching the television, you want to have it on so that there's some background noise in your home. Don't raise your hand. You know who you are. How many of you, as soon as you get into your car, the first thing you need to do is turn the radio on because you need to, there to be noise in the car. You need music, you need talk radio, you need something going on in the background. We don't like quiet. We have Spotify always playing. Are you the person who, if you're with somebody else and you're having a conversation, but then all of a sudden there's a pause in the conversation, that that for you every time is an awkward pause? It doesn't need to be. I'm just saying you're interpreting every clause. So then even though if you have nothing to say, you start talking. Because you've got to fill the air with the sound of something. And I'm just saying that if there's noise around you all the time, it can make it very difficult to hear the voice of God and to know that he's actually with you. We need to recapture a sense of silence being a good thing. Distraction, noise, here's a third one. Self-centeredness. Self-centeredness can keep me from sensing the presence of God because I'm like literally crowding him out. 
I'm so much about, you know, myself, so enamored maybe by the sound of my own voice that I don't hear the voice of God. So focused on my own needs and my own wants that I have no room for the awesomeness of who God is in my life. So self-centered. Or this fourth one, maybe it's, maybe it's not you at the center of things, but it's someone else. And, and maybe it's people-pleasing. So busy listening, not to yourself, but listening to what other people say. And, and I, I have to try and make those people happy. And I don't want anybody to be angry with me or upset with me. Or I just want to kind of, you know, cater to the needs of those around me. And because you're constantly listening to the voices of others, again, you can't hear the voice of God. You don't even know he's with you. We have to slow down. And we have to quiet ourselves. And we have to create some space on our calendars. And in our days, to know the presence of God. We need this because when we're at our most desperate, and these two disciples are at their most desperate, when we're at our most desperate, what we need more than anything else is the presence of God in our lives. And there's probably more than a few people here this morning and you are being crushed right now by the circumstances of life. And it's not gonna help you to listen to other people or to listen to yourself. It's not gonna help you to turn up the radio and somehow create a distraction. What you need is the presence of God. And maybe the message you came here today to hear is that one. Maybe what you came here to hear is Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. That's exactly what he's doing with Cleopas and this other disciple right now. And it's exactly the thing that he wants to do in the lives of people in this room. That's the first one. Here's the second. I should also have certainty about Jesus because I remember his mission. And if I was ask you the question, um, what was Jesus' purpose in coming to earth? We would, we would probably come up with that list would first involve things like he came to give his life for us. He came to shed his blood for the forgiveness of sins. You know, he came to identify with us and, and, and offer himself as a sacrifice. And we would immediately go to the crucifixion and to the sacrifice and even to the resurrection. And we would say that was his purpose for coming. But in the Gospels, when Jesus was saying the reason for why he came he always went to preaching. I came to preach. One example of that is actually early in Luke's gospel, Luke 4.43. He said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God. I mean, it's fair to say that Jesus' mission was bringing the kingdom of God to earth and offering it to us so that we could recalibrate our lives, so that we could be renewed and become part of that kingdom. And when we think about that mission, if that's the mission, bringing the kingdom of God to earth, that's Jesus, bringing the kingdom of God to people around me, if that's the mission, then focusing on that mission is a great way to recalibrate my life when I get out of sync. These two disciples, their life was out of sync, needed recalibration, needed reorientation, refocus. So Jesus comes up and walks alongside of them to do just that. 
And he's going to get them to talk about the mission so that they remember. Verse 17, he comes alongside them. Hey, what are you guys talking about? It's essentially what he says. And they stopped dead in their tracks. The text tells us, verse 17, they stood still, looking sad. I know something about this. This, this being stopped in my tracks and looking sad and despairing of my situation. I, I'm speaking really personally right now. I know something about this. I know about being in a tough place, about just wearing anxiety and, and, and affecting every part of my life because of circumstances around me and, and not knowing how something is going to turn out. That the road to get there, whatever that is, is going to be a very difficult road. And I don't know that it's going to be a good thing at the end of that road. I know that feeling. And I know how that kind of situation can affect everything else in my life. I know how it affects every relationship. I know how it affects my marriage. I know how it affects my kids, my friendships. I know how it affects my work. I know how it affects me mentally, emotionally. I know how it affects me physically. I mean, I'm telling you something personal, something I've experienced. And I bet many of you in this room are saying, that sounds like my story too. We know what this feels like. But that's where these two disciples are at. Verse 18, Cleopas and this unnamed disciple. I don't know why he's unnamed, you know. I feel like um, on the list of things I want to find out when I get to heaven is... Uh, who was the second guy? You know, they're anxious about what they said in verse 14 was these things that had happened, namely the crucifixion of Christ, that he had been betrayed and, and crucified. And they have no idea how it's all going to turn out. They think that Jesus is dead and that he's been dead. Now it's the third day since his death. And they're obviously sad about it. They're, they're let down uh, by the whole thing. And, and so despondent about it that, that even though the women have come back and said, the tomb is empty, we met these angels, they've left Jerusalem. Cleopas and his other disciple are gone down the road. They're not waiting to get more evidence. They're just so broken about the whole thing. And they're having this conversation with each other as they walk down the road in an effort to work it out. But it is consuming them. And when this stranger comes alongside them, verse 18, Cleopas can't even believe that anyone who is in Jerusalem wouldn't know, what he says here, what happened there in these days. How could you not know what happened in Jerusalem? Now Jesus will be super respectful here, but he's playing with them a little bit, you know. Jesus knows who he is. They don't know who he is. And he says to them in verse 19, what things? I mean, he knows exactly what went down. It happened to him. What things? But now he has a purpose in all of this. And the purpose is he wants them to say the words. He wants them to rehearse the mission. He wants them to remember what he had taught them, what they had seen, what, who he was and is. He wants the words to come out of their mouths. 
Verse 19, and they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth. Notice now in, in the text in verse 19, a man who was a prophet. That's Cleopas' word. In other words, who he is. Not too hung up on prophet here. Jesus called himself a prophet at times. So a man who was a prophet, a preacher of the kingdom of God. Mighty indeed, that's what he did. So who he is, what he did, and word, what he taught and what he said. So concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word, before God and all the people. And then they went on to tell, verse 20, how he was betrayed, condemned, and crucified. And how crushed they were at the whole thing. Because, verse 21, notice this, it's so sad, but we had hoped, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And the facts are in, and he was not. Because he's been dead, and it's now the third day since these things have happened. And then they recounted the events of Sunday morning, which we've already talked about a little bit here. And we, we talked about these events last week, how the, verse 22, the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early. Verse 23, when they did not find the body, they came back. They said they saw angels. They talked to them. And the angel said that he was alive. Verse 24, and some of those who were with us went to the tomb. Um, evidently, uh, they, Cleopas and this unnamed disciple, did not go to the tomb, but some others did and found it just as the women had said. But here's the fact that they needed that they didn't have yet. Him, Jesus, they did not see. Now, poor Cleopas and the unnamed disciple, despite the evidence, they still haven't believed. And, did I mention, they left town. They so didn't believe that they left Jerusalem. And I just think that as believers, we can get ourselves into the same kind of situation. Despite all the evidence of Christ around us and in us and working through us, we can lose sight of him. And what can help in a time like that, and, and we'll all be susceptible to that, but what can help is that we go back and do the exact thing that Jesus is getting these two disciples to do, which is to rehearse the mission. Let's think about this again. Let's rehearse the core things that we believe about Jesus and his mission. Because the only thing that matters, if you believe the New Testament, if you believe what Jesus said, the only thing that matters is the mission. I want you to believe that for yourself. The only thing that matters in my life is the mission of Jesus Christ. So, everything else in my life is just details. Where I go to school, who I marry, the kids I have, the friends I have, the church I go to, the job that I have, the career I pursue, the places I go on vacation, the dollars that are in my bank account, every little bit of it, how I spend my day, what my calendar looks like, what the trajectory of my life is, all of that, listen, mere detail. Whatever the particulars are for you, I'm telling you, the only thing that matters is the mission. Jesus Christ's mission was to preach the kingdom of God in this world. And our mission is to take that and proclaim the kingdom of God to this world. That's it. It's all about the mission. And in, in the next message, we're going to see where Jesus actually commissions them in the last part of chapter 24. 
And when you're struggling with the presence of God in your life, largely it's going to be it's going to be because you can't see through the circumstances of your own, your own life or you have your priorities messed up. And at those times, we should go back and review who Jesus is and who we are and what Jesus has done and what we ought to be doing and what Jesus said and what we need to believe. Every part of what he was saying here and who he was and what his mission was, is connected to and applies to our own lives. Now, something that's going to help me in that, see this next one, is I hear his word. I hear his word. I'm going to have certainty about Jesus if I hear his word. Now, Cleopas and, and this other disciple had, had Jesus right there to explain some things to them, and Jesus actually rebukes them. They still don't know who he is, but it's just interesting that this stranger now says to these two disciples, verse 25, he calls them fools. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets, all that the Bible has said. Jesus is saying to them, you're, you're so thick-headed. You don't even believe the Bible. It was Jesus saying that, just for the record, okay? Not me. Jesus is saying that. Why don't you believe what the Bible says? You're, you're so sad. You're so confused. You're so despondent. You left town. You forgot the word. You ignored the word. You didn't listen to the word of God. Foolish. Slow of heart to believe. So then he asked him a question, verse 26. It's a rhetorical question. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? There's only one possible answer to this rhetorical question, and the answer is yes. Yes, it was absolutely necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. I guess we forgot. I guess we forgot. And so at that moment, before they have a chance to respond, because they weren't supposed to respond anyways, at least they understood it was a rhetorical question. Verse 27, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, beginning with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, the minor prophets, beginning in those places, but not exclusive to those places. He takes them to the entirety of the Old Testament and notice he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. I imagine he took them to Genesis 3.15, the very first mention of a gospel of a good news, that there would be one who would come, the seed of the woman, who would crush the serpent's head. Genesis 3.15. I imagine he took them to Isaiah 53 and the prophets. I imagine he read to them about the suffering servant and reminded them that their Messiah would have to suffer in this way. I imagine he took them to Psalm 2. And so many of the Psalms are messianic and, and, and point to Christ and were fulfilled in his coming. Jesus took them to the Bible. And so this thing that we do every week, even though this is unusual for so many people outside of the church, this is not an unusual thing that we do. 
opening up the word of God, teaching it, applying its truths to our lives, being involved in each other's lives, studying it again in our small groups, holding each other accountable to it. This is not an unusual thing. This is exactly what we ought to be doing. The preacher in the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, verse 1, he said this, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. We must pay much less attention to all the noise and all the distractions and our own voices and the voices of the people around us. We much, must pay much less attention to all of that. We must pay much closer attention to what we have heard in the Word of God lest we drift away from it. There's just no substitute for us studying the Word of God hearing it preached, studying it ourselves, reading it, allowing it to flood into our lives. And if you are taking a pass on that, I'm only here every once in a while. I, I'm going to skip a Sunday. I'm not going to go to my small group. If, if, if you're skipping on your uh, time in the Lord during the week, listen, you, you're not going to do that for very long before you start drifting away from it because you're not regularly rehearsing and reminding yourselves about the things of Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle said this, ignorance of scripture is the root of every error in religion and the source of every heresy. Ignorance of scripture. You just don't know the Bible. That's why you believe wrong things. Now, Ryle for sure was talking about the grand doctrines of the Christian life, the deity of Christ, the inspiration of scripture. The, the salvation by faith alone through grace alone. That's what Ryle was thinking of. But we tell ourselves all these little heresies. We tell ourselves, I'm a Christian, therefore God should bless me. We tell ourselves, if I have enough faith, I can make anything happen. And it becomes like this little wish thing that we do with God. We think that we shouldn't have to suffer. And so when we do, when the crushing circumstances of life hit us as much as they hit an unbeliever, we shake our own fist at God and say, why would you do this to me? As if somehow we should be immune from the effects of sin in the world. All of that, whether you consider it or not to be, all of that is heresy. All of it is false teaching. And the only reason why we get to a place like that where we think somehow God has slighted us and somehow we deserve something, the only way we get to a place like that is ignorance of Scripture. We believe all these personal heresies. Don't be foolish. Don't be slow of heart to believe. Be serious about your study of God's word. And as you do, you will find your certainty about Christ to increase. All right. How many of these do we have? Is there a couple more? All right. Number four. I should also have certainty about Jesus because I experience, this is personal now, I experience his power. I experience his power. 
Verse 28, as they approach Emmaus, Jesus actually fakes them out a little bit again, and he pretends, he feigns that he is going to go further, and I believe that this is a bit of a test to them to see if they were listening to what he just said to them from the Old Testament. Because their track record in obeying wasn't actually that great. So now he wants to, he wants to test them in that, and they pass the test. Verse 29, they urged him strongly saying, stay with us. You know, it's getting late on Sunday. Why don't you come back? We'll get something to eat. You can rest and we'll talk some more about all of this. And so Jesus went in to stay with them and they sat down to eat. Now again, this is late on Sunday. Jesus had been resurrected sometime early in the morning. He had been crucified on Friday, but on Thursday night, this is just in the span of a few days now, we're just talking about a four-day span of time. On that Thursday night, you remember, he was with the 11. Judas was already out of the picture. And with the 11, he's sharing the Passover meal. And in the midst of that meal, he inaugurates the Lord's table, what we know as communion or the Lord's table today. He shares this meal with them. And at least in part, what this meal is about is about oneness and about identification with Jesus, that we are one with him. What we think about in terms of the communion, and there are many things, but one of the things is that the, the presence of Christ is with us. This very thing that we're start trying to lock our hands onto, to have certainty about. And so this meal is, is happening. Now Jesus is with these two disciples, Cleopas and the other disciple, and as they're at table together, notice now, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he didn't say anything. And immediately the Bible tells us they recognized who he was. They knew it was Jesus. Verse 31, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. They received the certainty they needed. Their feelings had led them down this road, but the facts supported it. And immediately in that moment, it almost seems unfair what happens next. But as soon as they recognize him, notice what it says, verse 31, the latter part there, he vanished from their sight. Now, I suspect that that's because he had accomplished what he set out to do in that particular instance. Verse 32, they said to each other, this is that verse, did not our hearts burn within us while, while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Didn't we have a feeling that he was Christ? Now the facts have supported it. We felt his presence and power. Now listen, for you and me, we're not likely to have that kind of an encounter and that's a pretty specialized situation that happened on the night of his resurrection. But God is no less powerful today, amen? 
God is no less powerful today. He is no less working today. He is no less interested in seeing lives transformed and, and, and sins forgiven. And he wants to bring about the great rehearse, reversal in people's lives. He wants to take people who are foolish right now, people who are slow of heart to believe. He wants to take those people. And if there are any foolish people here today, any slow of heart to believe people today, Jesus wants to bring you to himself, lead you, to him. And we have seen how God has worked to save us and restore what has been broken. And if you are not seeing this, it's a decision that you've made. It's not because God is not working. It's not because God is not powerful. It is because you're not engaged in the lives of those who are pressing into the Lord for these things to happen. Are you praying for God to work powerfully around you? Are you positioning yourself to see God work powerfully around you? Are you working in concert with the power of God? Because when you see it happening, it confirms what we read in the Word and gives us certainty about Jesus. One more, related closely to this one about power. It is that I see his work. Now, not surprisingly, verse 33, what are they gonna do? They're in Emmaus. They've just met Jesus. For whatever reason, they had left Jerusalem, but now, verse 33, they're headed back right away. The text says, they went back to Jerusalem to see the 11 and those who were with them gathered together. And in verse 34, Cleopas and the unnamed disciple hear from them. They get in the room and then that group says to them, the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. In other words, Peter has had an encounter with Jesus. It's not actually recorded anywhere in the New Testament for us, but Peter actually had this one-on-one -on -one encounter with Jesus. Verse 35, and then Cleopas and the unnamed disciple told what had happened to them? We were walking to Emmaus and this guy was with us and he told us these things and our heart was burning within us and, and then we had a meal and, and he revealed himself. We've seen him too. In other words, the certainty of what has happened now is being confirmed by the testimony, the, the personal testimony of people who've had an encounter with Christ. And there's no way to discount the power of your story to bring certainty to others about what Christ is doing in this world. I was raised, many of you know, I was raised in the Anglican church. We were a quasi-religious family, really um, didn't go to church very often. I would go more often than my parents would for sure. I had this inner sense of the whole thing. But I didn't go as often as... Uh, as others would go, I certainly wasn't regular at it, and I never, it was always just religion to me. I had a sense of God, but no relationship with him. I did not find Christ in the Anglican church. When I was 15 years old, our family had moved to Ontario. It was a crisis moment for our family, and things really were desperate and very bad for us in multiple ways. My mom, who had at one time seen the love of some Christians, especially in the, um, 
death of her mom and in the way that they conducted the funeral. In the midst of our tragedy and the challenges we were going through, my mom sought out some people from the Salvation Army who could come and teach her some things and help her with this. My mom gave her life to Jesus Christ. As a early teenager, young teenager at the time, my life was spiraling in, in a number of different ways and I too started going to that church and in a dark room on a Friday night at a youth event, I heard a man speak about the emptiness, the void that exists in your life without Christ. And at his invitation, I raised my hand and I said, I, I want Jesus Christ and I felt a warmth flow over my body in that moment as I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Everyone here who's a follower of Christ has a story like that. Your story is particular to you and has different details attached to it in different circumstances, but it's your story. The Lord has blessed me so much by allowing me to come to Christ in the Salvation Army. I obviously did not uh, stay there, but I was strongly impacted by that work and that church and their love for Christ in those days. And I've always been rather enamored by the whole thing. And William Booth, who was the founder of the Sally Ann back in the 1800s, uh, he would preach around throughout England, and he was conducting a meeting in Whitechapel with a congregation of about 1,200 people, and normally his speaking and preaching was very dynamic and would hold a crowd. But on this particular night, the number of unsaved people, godless people, was higher than usual, and some were actually quite violent and were making a nuisance of themselves, and he was making no impression on the crowd. And among his supporters was a man that he called, and I'm not sure if this is even an appropriate phrase anymore, but he was a gypsy hawker. Okay, he was, um, he, he was a traveling salesman, but not like super honest at doing it and, um, and selling things. And he lived a rather um, sinful type of life. He had been converted under Booth's ministry just a few weeks earlier. And so William Booth called him to the platform to tell of the change in his life, to give his testimony. And as soon as he started to talk, a silence fell over the hall. Because everyone knew the kind of life that he had lived. His words were bungling, but they rang true. And the attention of the crowd was recaptured in that moment. Booth later said to his son, Willie, I shall have to burn all those old sermons of mine and go in for the gypsies. From then on, Booth encouraged more testimony in his meetings, believing that ordinary working men in their corduroys and bowler hats could command attention from their own class, which refused point blank to me with my theological terms and superior knowledge. All Booth was saying was, don't discount the power of your testimony to bring about change in people's lives. It was just a few minutes ago we saw the baptism video an atheist, someone gripped by addiction, substance abuse, someone in, in the throes of a great personal trial that they didn't know how to get out, out of. And in every case, they would say, but Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus transformed my life. If you know Jesus Christ, you have that story as well.
The work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of ordinary people is a powerful means of seeing God at work and therefore of being certain of Jesus Christ, being certain of who he is, being certain of what he did, being certain of what he taught. Because he is the risen, powerful Lord and Savior of our lives. You can be certain of that. Let me pray. Father, first, um, I want to pray for those in the room who may not, as of yet, committed their life to you. Perhaps they're caught up in religion, thinking they're good. Perhaps they're caught up in the circumstances of their own lives. Perhaps they're listening to the voices of people around them. For whatever reason, Father, they have not yet humbled themselves they have not yet confessed their sin, and I pray, God, that in this moment they would, that your Holy Spirit would be revealing himself to them as Jesus revealed himself to those two disciples. And that today, God, they would find salvation, freedom, forgiveness of sins in Jesus. But God, we also have to pray as believers probably a prayer of repentance because Father it's so easy for us to become distracted for us to fill our lives with noise Father it's so easy for us to be consumed with our Selves, or to listen to the people around us or to be caught up in, in the world. And seriously, just to forget that you're walking right with us. That your Holy Spirit actually indwells us. And so God, we repent. Forgive us for all the ways we have forgotten you and pushed you to the side, for all the times that we have been foolish and slow of heart to believe. Thank you for your patience and for your kindness toward us. Please, Father, continue your good work in us. Send your Holy Spirit to work right now in every heart and mind. I pray in the name of Christ. Amen.